started this morning, and as Luke is cleaning up uh, his mess right there, uh, his water mess, I, I'm curious, and this is, is I plan to start this way, and I'm curious, when was the last, I just want you to think about it for a moment, when was the last disagreement, argument, conflict that you had? Because we saw one right here, I'm sure Isaac and Luke are going to have, you're going to have... <laughs> They're going to have uh, their choice words from dad maybe later. I don't know. That was a great example. And it also gets us to think about this, uh, this idea for a moment. When was the last conflict? And as you think about that, that disagreement or that conflict for a moment, I want you to start thinking and remembering what feelings you've had with that. How did it make you feel? And then take it a step further for a moment as you think about these, this last disagreement or argument, conflict that you've experienced. How did you respond? What words did you say and how did you say them? What I want us to do this morning is I want us to stay into this little uncomfortable space for a few moments and think about but also be encouraged about what it means for God's people to be in disagreement and conflict. I think it's important when, uh, you know, uh, Nathan read for us this morning 1 Corinthians chapter 12. When we, you can go ahead and bring up 1 Corinthians chapter 12. When we pay attention to verses like this, as we have the last couple of weeks, we are reminded that we come together, that we are different people with different backgrounds and different thoughts. We approach not only life, but we approach family and parenting. We approach uh, different aspects of life differently from one another. And yet, as Paul reminds the church of the first century in Corinth, and he reminds the church of the 21st century in Edmond, Oklahoma, he reminds us that even though there are differences amongst us, we are all bound together through the one spirit that is God himself. That baptism through Jesus Christ has brought us together. And though there are differences, we are one. Though there are many, we are one. And Paul uses the metaphor of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because it's an easy one. It's easy imagery for all of us to easily um, uh, uh, attach to, right? We understand our bodies. You understand how your body works. That you have different parts, different members, and they all work together. You don't think of yourself as one big pinky toe or one big ear. You think of yourself as one person, but you think about it, your body is made up of different parts or members. And what I want us to do is I want us to take this idea, because I think Paul is He's not only writing to the, church, to the church in Corinth that has a lot of conflict and disagreement. There's a lot of upheaval happening within this particular church. We find out in the early parts of 1 Corinthians that the church is kind of starting to, uh, to, to bring themselves into different factions. Some say Paul is right. Some say Apollos is right, and some begin to kind of have this conflict within the church that there are, there are leaders that we should follow and leaders that we should ignore. It becomes very quickly a divisive moment within the church. And Paul's speaking into conflict when he writes 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so when Paul writes, there are many of us, 
There are different parts and different members and different bodies and different people from different backgrounds with different thoughts. And all the differences are coming together in the Spirit of God. He writes into conflict. And we have to be aware. We have to be aware of how we not only handle, but walk through disagreement and conflict. Disagreement is going to happen, isn't it? It's a part of life, and it is a normal aspect of life. Disagreement is normal, and conflict, therefore, is inevitable. It's going to happen. You do not have to be very old in this room to have already experienced Conflict and disagreement. I remember very early on in my age, one of my earliest memories is conflict in preschool. When I was, when someone cut in front of me, I was cut in front of. It created conflict and disagreement. It happens very quickly in life, right? Probably the earliest that I know, stuff, at least from my experience, is when my three-day-old daughter, Lucy, was laying on the ground in our home and her big sister Reese comes along and I watch Reese take her arm and try to bend it over backwards to see how far it would go. Immediately we had conflict in the family, right? It happens quickly. Disagreement, conflict, they're going to be natural. They are happening in our lives. They are happening in your life every single day. And it's how God's people are going to walk through these moments of disagreement that matter. It's not God's people are immune to conflict and disagreement. It's how God's people are going to embrace disagreement and conflict and how God's people are going to work and how they're going to walk through the moments of conflict. Because as far as I can tell, and as far as I can see from observation as a fellow person like you, we do not handle disagreement and conflict very well. And God's people ought to handle and walk through conflict and disagreement, not like how we think we should, but how Jesus does. We handle it. We walk with it. But that's not how we're taught, is it? I was, uh, I was probably in third grade, and I was, uh, in that, at that age, I was walking home from school every day. And there was a stretch where I would walk home every day, and RJ would find me on the road, on the, the path that I would take from school to home, and RJ would start bullying me. And the bullying got, it started with words, and it escalated, and, and uh, it kind of escalated into RJ would start pushing me down. And so it became where I didn't want to come, uh, you know, didn't want to walk home from school. And so this was my dad's solution. My dad's solution was, I'm going to teach you how to fight. Right? So I, I have vivid memories of dad putting me in the living room and showing me different things to do. So he said, the next, tomorrow when you walk home from school, you are ready. He said, don't run away. This is... He said, you will stand there and you will, you're going to fight RJ. This is for my dad, okay? So, okay. He teaches me. I don't know, remember exactly what he taught me. I was like, I don't, he's like, you meet my dad. It's not like he did karate or anything. He just teaches me a few moves. So the next day, on my way home, like clockwork, RJ is there and he's bullying me and he's ready to push me down. And what do I do? I punch him because that's what I was taught. The one and only fight in my life, and I am disgusted with myself for ever doing it. But this is how we teach disagreement and conflict, isn't it? 
We teach because we are shown that when there is conflict and disagreement, we ought to fight back. You ought to stand up for yourself. You ought to be ready to go. And if RJ's come along, you ought to be ready to punch him in the stomach if you have to. But this is not the way of Scripture or the way of Jesus. And so one of the basic areas that God's people have to start wrestling with from a very fundamental level is that Jesus does not teach us he does not take us into the living room and say, here's how you punch. You know, here's how, don't put, your, don't put your thumb in your fist, put it. He doesn't go through all this stuff. You know what Jesus talks about? He talks about what it looks like to be a child of God, living in the kingdom of God, living in this fallen world and navigating and walking through disagreement and conflict with love and grace and mercy. And at the body of God, if the people of God, if the community of God, if the church of Jesus Christ himself is going to be punching back, we will never be the witnesses that God has called us to be in this world. Um, so let's think of it this way for a moment, and then I want to transition us to Matthew chapter 5, one of my favorite sections of scripture. Um, go ahead and go to this uh, image for me. Now, your body has disagreements with, it, with itself, right? Don't, you, know, you know, go back to the last, you know, Mexican dinner you had, right? There are disagreements within your body, right? Um, you can even think of it this way, and this is how I was thinking about it this week. Um, you, you've had these moments, like in the middle of the night, it's dark, and you hear something in the house, Right? You hear something, and so when you get up to investigate, like 99% of the time, your eyes tell you there's nothing there. But you heard something. There's immediate conflict within your own body because your ears said, oh, there's something there, but your eyes are saying, no, there's nothing there. Now, think about that scenario for just a moment. Now, what would happen, okay, as absurd as this is going to sound, what would happen if your ear and your eye started getting into an argument because I heard something, but I didn't see anything, and they literally started fighting with each other, your body would cease to function as a body, wouldn't it? Because your entire body would be encased, would be enthralled into an argument between your ear and your eyes. Now, that's not what happens in disagreement within your body. Your ear may hear something, your eyes do not confirm what the ears have heard, and your body yet continues to be one unified functioning body. Now, Paul uses the metaphor of the body. He gives us the imagery of the body for a particular reason. And I think it's not only because we can easily grasp it, we understand it, because it also gives us a really wonderful illustration of what it looks like for God's people to be in conflict. Okay, I did hear some, but I didn't see anything but we're still functioning together, unified together. I'm not revolting and saying, well, if you don't see, if you're not going to confirm what I heard or, or, or at least agree with me and all this, that, you know, your eye just all of a sudden walks away, I'm going to go find another body to be a part of. And then we have three-eyed people walking around and it'd be tragic, right? As absurd as that is, that's how we handle disagreement. We teach, we teach fighting skills, we teach how to be argumentative. 
how to raise up fear. We teach it and we expect it, but that is not the way of Jesus Christ. Dis disagreement is normal. Conflict is inevitable. And how God's people handle it is vital. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. There are plenty of passages, sections of Scripture that we could have gone to. But without, without apology, if I can go to the Sermon on the Mount, I will. And in Matthew chapter 5, I want to pick up in verse 23 for a moment. Jesus has this. These are the words of Jesus. And Jesus has this to say. We're going to build this out here in just a moment, but I want to start with verse 23. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Now, what is Jesus building up? Now, in Matthew chapter 5, this is the first, and we're going to build this out a little bit more, this first example, but Jesus has six examples. They're, they are real-life applications to what he says, uh, the, the verses right before this. He says, your righteousness has to be greater than that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And Jesus is going to show us with practical examples of what life looks like when you're going to live righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And it begins with a real-life practical example. That if you are going to the altar to offer your sacrifice, we might even say this, if you are going to church on Sunday to worship God, and on your way there, you remember, you are, you are drawn to this moment where you remember that there is someone that you are in conflict and disagreement with. You know what he says? He says, hit the brakes, turn around, Go to their house and reconcile with that person before you go to church. Now Jesus, Jesus is talking about sacrifice, going to the altar. Now for a first century Jewish person, they go to the altar to give sacrifice. You know why they go to the altar and they give sacrifice of grains or sacrifice of animal? You know why they sacrifice, very simply put? at least the way I'm under, uh, I understand it, is a sacrifice to be in relationship with God. Because when they offer sacrifice, they are atoning for sins and separation, and their big split with God, their sins are being brought closer together in that moment. So this is what Jesus is also saying. He's saying, I would rather you go reconcile with the human being then go reconcile with God first. See, we think it's the other way around. Well, I need to be right with God. And then we can figure out this person thing. That's not what Jesus says. He says, if you're on your way to church, stop and go reconcile with a human, the person, before you can go reconcile with God. Sacrifice to God. Worship to God. 
Now God, or Jesus, begins to kind of flip. And this is the, as one of the things I love about the Sermon on the Mount. The way he presents these practical, righteous ways of living are completely flipped upside down on our heads over and over again. And here's where I want to pause for just a moment. And we're going to back up in just a second and kind of build out Matthew 5, 21 through 24. I want us to think about for just a second this word that Jesus uses, Reconciliation. Here's where I think that a lot of us, if not most of us, when we read a passage like this, this is what we hear. We hear Jesus say, first go and resolve all issues before you come to the altar and sacrifice. Reconciliation versus resolution. Jesus does not say, he does not say, resolve all the issues. He says reconcile. And there's a difference here. Reconciliation, reconciliation means to reestablish relationship. Resolution means to resolve all the issues at hand. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, on your way to church, if you remember that you were in conflict or disagreement with someone, hit the brakes, turn around, find that person and reestablish relationship. Jesus' point is not to fix all the issues of the situation or circumstances or all the issues of the world and community around us. Jesus' point is to reestablish relationship. First go and be reconciled. Before you go to church, before you take communion, before you praise God with those lips, reconcile to the person. That reestablishing relationship is the vital aspect of what it means to walk through disagreement and conflict. The relationship reestablished is on us, right? This altered language is for us to come into his presence as people who have relationship with others. Not people who want to tear down relationship or create chasms in our relationships. But people who seek reestablishing a reconnection with the people that maybe we have disagreement with. Jesus is not saying that the eye and the ear get the fight and the whole body gets to be consumed by the disagreement. He's saying they still are in relationship with one another, one another. So what is the purpose or the value of doing this? Jesus talks about this. This is where I want to back up to verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5. So Jesus in, in verse 23 and 24 says that he gives this very practical example. If you're on your way to church, oh, I got disagreement, stop, go, and reconcile with him. Why would that be the example? Well, the first of the six examples that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 5 has to do with anger. So let's pick up here, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Rakah, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now the first of the six examples that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 5 has to do with anger. 
And he begins, this is this formula that Jesus uses right here. You've heard it was said, but I'm going to tell you something else, right? There's a, there's a normal, established, communal parameter that we all accept. And he gives this six different times. But Jesus is going to push up against what is normal and accepted. You've heard it was said, do not murder. Now, I've never met anyone who would disagree with that normal, communal, accepted parameter. Do not murder. That's a good thing for people to follow and establish, right? Do not murder. But Jesus takes it a step further. He says, you've heard it was said, do not murder. We all accept that idea that we do not want to murder other people. But I'm telling you this. Do not be angry with the person. Now, just as a fellow person, if I'm writing this, I'm thinking there's at least 12 steps in between murder and anger, right? But Jesus goes straight there. Because Jesus is, is, is equating murder and anger on the same level. I want you to think about this. Murder and anger with other people are the exact same thing in the eyes of the Savior. Because murder and anger share one specific characteristic. They take away relationship. They take life away from us. So we can say physically, yes, you do not want to murder. But Jesus is saying when you are anger, angry with anyone, you have done the exact same thing. You have taken away the opportunity for reconciliation and, or, and relationship, right? They are the exact same thing. You've heard it was said and we can all agree on that. But guess what? When we find ourselves in anger, we are taking away Relationship, possibility of bringing together, possibility of uh, living together in this place. It is a taking of life in our anger that Jesus is pushing up against. And we have to accept and live with this idea that reconciliation is the way of Jesus. And at no point anywhere does Jesus teach his people to go Curl up their fist and get ready to punch someone in the gut. The antidote to anger for Jesus is quite simple. It's reconciliation. It is a God's people seeking to reestablish relationship. Now, notice what I just didn't say. I did not say God's people going and solving all the issues, resolving all the problems. If we're going to be that kind of people, then we're going to be yelling a long time and no one's ever going to listen. That's not what Jesus is concerned about. You don't have to look far. We do not have to look far to be angry or upset about anything. But if we're going to be angry people, then we're going to be people who creates the separation from people. Jesus is not calling his children of God to go and to be angry about the things that they see are wrong in this world or wrong with the situation or circumstance. He's calling his people to build relationships, to find connection. And if we're going to live in anger, if anger is going to be our, you know, our, our way of going, 
going about life, if that's going to be our first thing and our only thing, then we are going to continue to take away life from the body of Jesus Christ. Let me say a couple of quick things about this. Anger is a valid and normal emotion. Please do not hear me downplaying your emotional response to any circumstance or situation in your life. What I believe Jesus is asking of us is to pay attention that if our anger is ongoing, it becomes dangerous to our spiritual lives. If we hold on to anger, we are not establishing opportunities for relationship. We are literally taking life away from us. Anger's normal. All of us have experienced anger. When that boy cut in front of me in preschool, I was angry. And though I've brought it up twice now, I promise you I'm not harboring anger over it anymore. Okay? Anger that consumes us, anger that pushes us, anger that informs our decisions is an unhealthy anger. Well, I'm not going to do this, or I'm not going to say this, I'm not going to that place, I'm not going to be a part of that. Those kinds of decisions that, are informed, that anger is informing is an unhealthy anger that does not seek to reestablish relationship. It does not seek reconciliation. Second thing I want to point out about this idea for a moment is take note of what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5. There's a lot of things Jesus is saying, but take note of what I think is the most prevalent and pressing mo uh, thing here for a second. Jesus is saying reconciliation is your responsibility. Reconciliation is your responsibility, not theirs. You and I do not get to sit on our high horses waiting for someone to do the right thing before we can reestablish connection. That's not what Jesus says. His very practical and straightforward example is if you're on your way to church, stop and go take care of the relationship. That's on you. That's on me. We don't get to just wait for the right moment or the right thing for that person. We do not get to control or dictate how other people live in this world. We can only make the choices for us. And Jesus is calling his children to make a choice for reconciliation. One of the hardest things as a parent and as a person, I have to teach my children and as a person to live into is I do not get to to dictate or control how you respond or live and do certain things. I can only control how I respond. And in conflict and in disagreement, the only person I control is my ability to stop the car, turn around, and go reestablish relationship before I go to church. That's not on them, that's on me. So here's what I want to do. I want to turn very quickly to Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 13. <clears throat> I know I'm at, running out of time here. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. What I want to do as a way of conclusion this morning is I want us to ask the question, how is this played out? Practically in my life, how do I live out 
the, making the choice of reconciliation. Now, I, um, and I haven't fully decided if I'm going to do this next week or not, but I was very tempted to spend all of my time in Romans chapter 12 this week. And so what I want to do is turn to Romans 12. I, re- I want to read verses 17 and 18, okay? And if you want preacher homework, read Romans chapter 12 today. Okay, just go read the chapter. It's one of the best passages of Scripture in all of your Bible, go read Romans chapter 12. Paul talks about this this body and this orientation that we have with one another, that we are different in Romans chapter 12. He says we are all different. We're all different people. We're all made up different ways. And that body, though different, is made up one body. It makes up one body, and it's connected through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And we all have a a part to play in ministry and service. These are things that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. And here, he gets towards the end of this particular chapter. And out of this, he says, though we are different, and though we we, uh, find ourselves with different backgrounds and different ways of living and going about things, we are one in Jesus Christ. So guess how you live this out? One of the more practical things that Paul may ever say. Romans 12, verse 17 and 18. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It's here, Paul, that pushes this love that is only like Jesus Christ. Where anger is not the determining emotion that makes all of our decisions for us. No, we live in love and in unity and we make a choice for reconciliation by not repaying evil for evil. Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew uh, chapter uh, 6, Jesus says, and I, uh, later on in Matthew 5, excuse me, he says... You've heard it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, but I'm telling you, do not resist an evil person. What is Jesus saying? Choose reconciliation. Here's why why, um, a couple things, and I want to end like this. Because Romans 12 really brings up this practical aspect of what it means and what it looks like to be played out. Uh, Two things to end. First, being right is wrong. Being right is wrong. Um, I don't think, and I, if, if you have a, if, you, if your Bible says something different, please let me know, but I don't believe that Jesus ever not only calls us, but also gives us a life example of being Right is the, the right way of going about things. Jesus, again and again, as far as I can tell, he comes across these Pharisees and these Sadducees, these teachers of the law who believe they are right, and they are going to be right at the end of the conversation. And Jesus knows he is right, but he never pushes it. That's not the point of his connection and his conversations Being right is wrong, and God's people today have got, we have got 
to stop thinking we have to be right about everything. Jesus does not call us to be right about everything. Jesus doesn't call us to to rise up and go make sure we shove it down everyone's throat that we've got it understood and we're right about everything. He calls us to love and to unity. He calls us to make the choice to reestablish relationship, not tear people down. We've got to stop being right about everything and we've got to start being people who love first because loving first is never wrong. And here's how, I'm, here's how we end. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31 through 13, 4. Now Paul, Nathan read that scripture for us earlier this morning, uh, a good chunk of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul talks about the body and the members of it. And we're all different And all the differences are brought together through the Spirit of God. Now, Paul doesn't write in chapters and verses. Paul writes in thought. And as Paul writes this to a church that is in conflict and disagreement, you know what? You know how Paul kind of takes that conversation? This idea that disagreement and conflict are all brought together into this idea that we're one in the name of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God. He says, now I'm going to show you. Out of the conversation about the body and the community, the church of Jesus Christ, he now says, I'm going to show you what is the most excellent way for the body of Jesus Christ to live. If I speak in tongues or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move mountains, but I do not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast but I do not have love I gain nothing out of this imagery of God's body being right and winning and making people understand is not the greatest thing that Paul says the body of Christ can do You know what I say? I say being right is wrong and loving is never going to be wrong. And I say, you know what? Let's be wrong. Let's be wrong. But let us never, never stop loving. If there's a need of any kind, I'm going to make myself available down front this morning. Tom Snyder, one of our elders, will make himself available in the back of the room here this morning. You can find either one of us during the singing of this song. If you'd like to come forward this morning, if this church can rally around you, pray with you, be with you, whatever the need may be. Maybe today is a day that you want to say yes to him in the waters of baptism. We will find water today, and we will have celebration of new life if we, if we need to. If that is something you want to do, please come find myself or Tom. Let's stand together.